Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Welcome, everyone, to the SI Media Podcast. I am your host, Jimmy Train. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you missed it last week, you were busy with the holiday. Katie Nolan was our guest here on the SI Media Podcast, so make sure you dip into the archives and uh, give that one a listen. Katie was really good and uh, in studio, so that always makes for a better episode. This week, Mike Florio, the creator of Pro Football Talk, joins the show, and uh, we'll get to him in a moment. Just a reminder, please, if you're not a subscriber and this is your first time listening, hit the subscribe button, rate, review. It all helps tremendously and uh, can help uh, keep us going. And uh, that's it. Let's get right to this week's show. Mike Florio, Pro Football Talk. All right, joining me now, first time for me here on the SI Media Podcast. Very happy to have him. Mike Florio from Pro Football Talk. Mike, how's it going? Going great, buddy. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for uh, coming on. And uh, I always enjoy speaking to uh, to guys like you, people like you. Uh, I've had um, the Basketball Jones guys, Skeets and Taz on and Greg Wyshynski. And I, I always love these stories of, of sort of people who took their own route to get into sports media and to succeed in it. And obviously, uh, you've done that. Um, so before we get into some other, maybe some NFL things, I, I want to talk about sort of your backstory. I, I, you started Pro Football Talk November 1, 2001, correct? Correct. This is going to be a weird question to start off with, but did, did 9-11 have anything to do with it in terms of like wanting to get out on your own? What When I see November 1, 2011, as a New Yorker, I used to think 9-11. I'm just curious. A lot of people sort of went for like life-changing things after that. Was that a factor at all or... Not it's really. an excellent question. I've never been asked that before, and I'll give you the quick story on the influences that we all had at that time, because right. we all were in a weird state of mind with uncertainty as to mortality and or how quickly it would be expiring, given the fears that there would be more attacks and more issues. And I remember I used to watch Don Imus on MSNBC every morning, and he would basically say, we're all going to die. And I'd hear that every day for multiple weeks, and it has an effect on you. At the time, what I was doing, 
I was writing for ESPN.com's Insider Service. They were the entity that came in and bought out the carcass of SportsTalk.com, which had NFLTalk.com, which was the first website I ever wrote for, unpaid for a year or so, and ended up at ESPN.com on a six-month contract. And I was in the process in late September, early October of 2001 of deciding whether to sign a one-year deal that would have renewed on November 1 of 2001. And through that aftermath, when we all were making broader observations about our lives and our futures, and is it worth for me getting up at 5 a.m., working on the ESPN.com insider service for five or six hours, going to my law office and putting in a full day after that, coming home, spending a little time with my family, and doing it all over again the next day, that was one of the big factors. I mean, life's too short to be working two full-time jobs. So one of the major, major factors in the decision to just do my own thing was indeed, I, I just I don't want to continue doing this, and I want to have something where I have more freedom over my time and I can work a more normal schedule because maybe Don Imus is right. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, when I was asking you the question, it sounded so weird coming out. But I, I, you know, anything that happens that close to that date, it's hard to not think there's some influence there. No, it's a great question because uh, after you know, yeah. 18 years later, it sounds weird talking about it. Right. But we all had a collective trauma, and our mindset, our attitude, our outlook on life changed dramatically. And with the passage of time, like with anything else, with the passage of time, it went away. We adjust, we adapt, and in hindsight. It seems foolish to have been that concerned about broad, big-picture topics like that. But at the time, it was very reasonable. And for me, it was a factor. And you start thinking life's too short about all sorts of things in the aftermath of something like 9-11. What, what was your goal for the site when you started it? I mean, I can't, I can't imagine you ever thought it would get to be this big. Well, I, you know, I just wanted to have fun. And I found something that I enjoyed doing. And it was this new medium and the idea that a guy can be sitting in his house in West Virginia and type something up and press a button and instantly it can be read anywhere in the world, that was just kind of a, a strange sort of power that, that never existed before. To have a voice and to have a platform originating from a place that was so far removed from, from the mainstream of where major media outlets typically existed. So I, what I wanted to do... And, and one of the big reasons, from a practical standpoint, why I made the, the shift, I didn't like the idea of I would write something and it would get submitted and it would go through two or three levels of review and approval and two or three hours later, it would finally go live. I thought there was value in having the ability to instantaneously get something posted and the quicker it's up, the better. And I had no idea how right that instinct would be at the time. It just felt like it made sense, right? right? The sooner you, if it's done, right, it's like a pizza. You get it out of the oven, you, want to, well, you don't want it to do while it's too hot, but the fresher it is, the more impact it's going to have. So I wanted to be able to cut out layers and levels of editorial control and just be able to say, story over, hit the button, move on to the next one. And, uh, and that was a big part of it. And, and I just, you know, I, I just, enjoyed it. There was something about it that I enjoyed. I never knew how it was all going to fall together, but I always had a sense that if I could grow it, that it would eventually grow to the point where it would generate revenue, and maybe at some point it would generate enough revenue that I could get out of practicing law. And I'd say 99% of all lawyers who are practicing law, especially in a litigation setting where it's fighting all the time and stress all the time, 
they like what they're doing until they see an escape route. And right. if they can get out and make as much or more money doing something else, they squeeze through that door as quickly as they can. And th- when that door popped open for me, there was no hesitation. When you started the site November 2001, was it just you or did you have any kind of staff? No, there was no staff. Now, I had a business partner early on who would jump in and write some stuff. And I focused mainly on the day in and day out rumor mill posting. And and it was so simple back then. I, <laughs> yeah. I would write three stories in the morning. I would do a collection of links to stories that were worth reading, but I didn't want to write a whole article about them. And I would work on it from, I don't know, 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., and then I'd go about my business. And a lot of times I would never even go back and update it throughout the course of the day. And there were a lot of weekends during the first couple of years where I never touched it. And so the only writer, the only full-blown staff writer, other than a business partner who would dabble in some stuff that he felt like writing, the first writer was Michael David Smith in 2007 time frame. Um, And and it got challenging when, you know, if I'd have a trial (laughs) – I'd have to get up a little earlier than I ordinarily would and, and post some content and then move on to what I had to do with my law practice and get back to the website whenever I did. And I knew, look, I wasn't making any money, so it's not like I felt an obligation. There, I always had this concern that once it became something that would generate revenue, it would become an obligation and it would stop being fun. I was always concerned that at some point it's going to be like any other job and I'm going to dread doing it that same way you dread, no matter how much you like your job. If it's a normal job, at some point you dread it. There's a day where you just don't want to do it. I always was afraid that it was going to become that all the time. And, uh, and, and that's why I think I resisted early on really going all in with it. And, and, and also, it wasn't making much money. So to finally answer your question, it was just me for a long time with a business partner who was doing some other stuff just for kind of craps and giggles. And how many staffers do you have now? Now we have... Five in addition to me, Michael David Smith, Shereen Williams, who is a past president of the Pro Football Writers Association. She won the Dick McCann Award in 2018, and she's one of the Hall of Fame voters. She's also one of the voters for the NFL's all-time 100 team. Darren Gant, who is a Hall of Fame voter, covered the Panthers for 14 years with the Rock Hill Herald. And Josh Alper, who's been with us for a long time. Curtis Crabtree of KJR in Seattle handles the night shift. So we're covered for all but like two hours out of the day, like from 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. Eastern, we're not covered. But in the event something breaks overnight, Curtis is in a position where he can get it covered. So if there's somebody up late and they, they wonder why we don't have a story, we want to make sure we have a story about it. So it, it works well. I don't think we could take another one because uh, we generate a ton of content with the six that we have, and that's been a good balance. And I've been blessed. You know, people, people go about their business. They're autonomous. They have good instincts. We don't work together, which I think is very conducive to getting along when you don't have to actually, you know, be in the same place all the time or ever. The only time we're together is at the Super Bowl when we have all of us lined up in a row where at whatever stadium the Super Bowl is hosted at. The rest of the time we don't see each other and we don't interact with each other other than text message. And uh, I, I think, you know, the, the less... The less regular interaction, the easier it is to make sure everybody's happy, and uh, and we all and we all do get along. It, it really is amazing, and and uh, I, I I stay out of their way, and I think they appreciate that, and it, it makes for for a good work environment for everyone. So I'm I'm curious um, because you talked about in the early days just posting sort of you know Monday through Friday, I guess on a nine to five or you know maybe earlier in the morning, but you said no night posts, no weekend posts. Um, and I sort of know for me, obviously different 
we're doing completely different things. But back then when I was writing hot clicks for SI, it was a Monday through Friday in the morning and then that was it type of thing. And for I know for me what changed a lot of the game in terms of posting and what you post, uh, Twitter changed everything because you couldn't sit on anything and everything was so immediate. How did did Twitter change pro football talk at all? Did it change what you wanted to do, how, your philosophy for it when that came around? No, actually, it was before Twitter. Two things happened. First of all, we started making real money, and that was in 2006 when we did a deal with Sprint, and they became the primary sponsor of the website. That's when I realized I need to start putting more time into it because we had a minimum page view requirement that we had to hit every month, or they clawed back some of the payment that we were due to make. So I started being more selective in the legal cases I took on, so I'd be available every day, every day, every day. And two years before that, the only New Year's resolution, and of course this is the the month to make yourself feel guilty about all the ways that you should improve, (laughs) but you really don't want to, and I hate New Year's resolutions because I already have enough things I feel bad about, but the one that I ever stuck to, it was January 1, 2004, I said, if this thing is ever going to reach its potential, I have to work on it every single day. And I've done that every single day since January 1 of 2004. Now, it's not really work, and I enjoy it. So, you know, it's not like going into a coal mine. But, you know, I kind of accepted a couple of years in that you can't make this thing reach its full potential if you're not fully committed to it and if you don't find time every day to work on it. So... What is the what is sort of your schedule now in terms of I mean you have a staff so and I know you have obviously other things you're doing the you know you do football night in America on Sundays you have PFT live every morning um, how involved in the website are you I mean I would assume it's still your baby you're still always going to sort of uh, need a want a hand in that since it's your creation yeah I mean typical day for me on a weekday during the season is. On a Tuesday through Friday, it's up at 5.20 a.m. Show starts on radio at 6 a.m. I try to post a story before the show starts if I can fit it in. But between the shower, the shave, the shampoo, and getting ready to be on TV at 7, sometimes I get one done. Sometimes I have to finish it during the radio breaks in the first hour of the show. At 7 o'clock, we go live on NBCSN. We do that for two hours. And that's all in because... The radio breaks, even though they're seven minutes long, the TV breaks are shorter, and we do TV segments in between, and I'm fully focused on that until 9 o'clock. At about 9.05, we'll tape some extra stuff, digital, video, on-demand type things. I'm usually free by 9.30. I do some radio in places like Charlotte and Chicago and Miami and Minneapolis, depending upon what day it is. And then throughout all of that, it's just post-content, post-content. I try to hit between 12 and 15 stories per day on a weekday that I personally post. And we're in contact all day long via text message. And it's a very simple process. It's like calling fly balls in the outfield if there's a development. If somebody's reporting that Ron Rivera, the Panthers announced yesterday, in fact, nobody even reported it, I don't think. The Panthers announced it and caught Mm -hmm. everybody by surprise. So the first person who sees it sends a text to everybody else that they're getting the story that Ron Rivera was fired by the Panthers, and that's just how we kind of direct traffic all day long. So I monitor that, and I keep my ears open for anything new, and I'll make phone calls and keep in touch with whoever I'm trying to keep in touch with for any stories I may be working on, and then just kind of, I just kind of just go and go and go until evening, have some dinner, work out, and just kind of keep going until bedtime. And, and I try to sneak in a one-hour nap in the afternoon because I get five hours of sleep, at night, if I'm lucky, 
and I squeeze in an hour in the afternoon, and that's the only way I can keep going until about midnight, uh, which, you know, because no matter how hard I try, when you're in a household where there are other creatures, including a spouse and a dog, that are on a schedule that does not accept that you have to get up at 520, you have to adjust. So it's five hours of sleep and one hour in the afternoon. And uh, pretty much, you know, it's, I, I, I mean, it's kind of pathetic and it's kind of lame because I don't really have any hobbies. And <laughs> Uh, I, I just, I'm just plugged in all the time. Right. And, and I don't know life any different than that now. Like if I unplugged, I don't know what I would do with myself because you find a way to carve out an existence plugged in all the time and taking 10 minutes to write a story, 20 minutes to write a story, 15 minutes to make a phone call. And it's just part of your routine. It's part of your lifestyle. And I don't know what I would do if I wasn't doing it. I have to ask when you take the nap phone off or on vibrate. I, it depends on what's going on. If it's a busy time, I leave the phone on. You know, if it's free agency, trade deadline, th- there are certain days where I leave the phone on. Sometimes, I mean, because I just, I know I can't function unless I get that sleep. I just trust that, that others will will catch whatever pops up. And every once in a while, I'll wake up and I'll see I got a text message from somebody that gives, they were giving me, you know, a story that, that others were going to end up with. But I can live with that because if I don't get that nap, uh, it's all going to collapse. And, uh, uh, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a day by day. How busy are we today? And, uh, what's coming up and can I justify turning the phone off and just getting an hour of REM sleep if possible? That's interesting. I guess if you do it every day, you get used to it. Cause there's sometimes when you only get like an hour, you wake up and you're in that fog that you can't get out of and it can mess you up more than, you know, it can help you. But I think your body is probably so used to it. It's a, you need, like you said, you need it or else. I can do an hour, function. Jimmy, yeah. if I do an hour and a half, that's when I can't get out of it. Interesting. Like I have to get up after an hour and I've gotten it figured out. You're right. You're kind of reprogram your body to do five and one and I can live with five and one and, uh, um, you know, anything. And then what I try to do on Friday, especially during the season, because during the season, you know, your reward for getting to the end of the week is you pack up your stuff and you travel to New York and you go to Connecticut and you work an 18 hour to 20 hour day at NBC, and then Monday you do your show and travel home, and hey, congratulations, you made it home, okay, now keep working. But I try to get uh, eight and a half hours on Friday night, eight and a half hours on Saturday night, and that allows me to function the rest of the week, getting between, you know, as a practical matter, five and a half and six hours. So, so you, you've talked about this, this schedule, it's pretty intense, and you've said, um, you know, you don't have outside hobbies, this is it for you. But earlier you had said, you know, you didn't want this to be a chore when you started the website. You didn't want this to be something you dread doing every day. Are there days where you, um, you know, maybe dread is a strong word, but are there days where you just don't want to do it? I think everyone has that. Or is it been because it's yours, there's never a day like that? Well, you don't have a choice. You can't take a day off. Right. You know, every once in a while, I'll lay in bed at 5:20, and I'll wonder what would happen if I just didn't show up for the show. What would they do? What would happen? Uh, but that that is a fleeting thought. And right, when I first right. moved to the morning shift, because we had the first year of the radio show, it was on 12 to 3 Eastern, and then the opportunity arose to do it early, and we knew there was a possibility of a simulcast. So once we did that. For the first year, I had many a morning where, for the first five minutes after waking up, I would have this intense feeling of, why in the hell do I do this to myself? But over time, you, you learn how to process that. And I don't even have that thought anymore. You just go. You know, you do what you have to do. I mean, we, we, and, and again, it, it beats the hell out of having a real job. Right. After practicing law for 18 years and knowing what it's like to have 
real stress and to have uncertainty and to be fighting and to have a judge who may or may not agree with what you're saying and to have a witness who may or may not cooperate the way that you think the witness could or should and to have a jury that's going to be completely unpredictable and worry about everything. This is great because it's just writing and talking and thinking about football and I'd have had you know, a chunk of my, my life where I would have been doing that anyway as a football fan. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's too late to get off the train. Um, and uh, my, my, uh, my concern was that if I ever was all in all the time, I wouldn't like it anymore. And, and that hasn't happened uh, in 10 years of, of it being full time. But, right. but when I first started, that was one of my concerns. Like, how long am I going to be able to do this before this is as drudgerous as any other job that you could have? where there are just days where it feels like the clock's moving backward. And it's never like that. And, right. uh, and, and at this point, again, it's too late. It's too late to get off. Yeah. Um, well, the, like, the, you know, the money's good, and it's nice to own your own business, and it's fun, and it's football, and I still love football, and I get excited by it still, and I love watching a great game, and I love being able to talk about and react to a great game. And, uh, you know, it's, you just, and I, like it, I like everything about the offseason, too, the free agency, the draft, all that stuff. And, you know, it just, uh, uh, you just keep going. And uh, I, I accepted long ago that I'm just going gonna to ride the horse as long as it carries me. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with what you said. I think guys like you and I who do this for a living, we, we, it's hard for us to wake up in the morning and complain because it could be so much worse. Um, but I do think, I think every single person, no matter whether it's, what your job is, what your profession is, how much you make. I mean, I think everyone, though, has those mornings where they wake up and they just it's not really the job that they're dreading. It's just, you know, it's like, you know what? I'd love a day here. Oh, where, yeah. Well, I mean, I we're human. Yeah, I mean, exactly. we're human. Yeah. And 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 part of what gets me out of that is recognizing that, you know, it's a lot of fun. And I mean, sometimes you have to tell yourself that even when you don't want to hear it. Like, hey, you know, there are a lot of people that kill to be a, to be able to do what you're doing. So snap out of it. And I've I've kind of managed myself to the point where I I I don't really I don't have to do that anymore. Right. I went through a stretch where, and especially like during football season when I was going back and forth to New York, and before I would fly, uh, I've been flying for about five years now. The first four years that I was traveling back and forth to New York, I you know. I, I, car to Baltimore and train to New York, and it was an eight-hour trip each way. And, you know, by late September, mid-October, again, why am I doing this? Right. Can I keep doing this? Um, that all kind of went away. And, and part of it, too, is it never slows down to the point where you can engage in any broad philosophical debate with yourself about <laughs> whether you're doing the right thing. Right. Because you can't, you can't afford to take your eye off the ball because the ball is constantly moving and you're constantly trying to stay ahead of it or at a minimum stay caught up with it. Now, do you – I know for me, and this isn't about dreading the job, but I do know you're, you're football specific. I, I sort of – I can go into any sport when I write my column, but I know that I get so worn out and tired – from stories, uh, Colin Kaepernick, even this year. I mean, the refs with the pass interference at this point, it's exhausting. Um, and like you said, watching the games is still fun. Watching these, you know, watching Mahomes and Lamar Jackson and Christian McCaffrey is still a blast. And, you know, I like to wager, so that adds some intrigue. And I get into the broadcasts. I mean, but there are those. Do you get where those, do you get it though, where there's stories where like you just, you don't want to cover this anymore and you just, can't take it or do you look at it like this story is good for business this will bring traffic how do you handle yeah we can track in real time yeah. what stories are moving the needle and which stories aren't and 
the, the, you know, Antonio Brown. It did get exhausting, right. but anytime there was an Antonio Brown story, like a significant Antonio Brown story, traffic would be through the roof. So you yep. got to play the hits. Yep. If people are interested in that, then you have to keep covering it. But then you can tell when it starts to wane, and you can see that that the stories aren't getting the same kind of traction. And uh, and sometimes you just have to deal with what lands in your plate. That's what frustrated me so much about the Colin Kaepernick fiasco from three weeks ago. Like, we're, we're focusing on a pretty compelling football season, and all of a sudden this turd gets dropped into the punch bowl that made no sense to anyone. And it still doesn't make sense why it happened. Right. And we had to deal with it. And, and what can you do? You can't say, well, we're just going to ignore it. It was a significant story. It was a significant development in a story that had basically gone away. And we just had to deal with it for a week or so until it died down again. Yeah, that, it, it is bizarre how that completely went away now. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help. Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Zero Foxtrot isn't just a brand. It's a way of life. Founded and operated by veterans, Zero Foxtrot's unique apparel and gear echoes the grit of the warrior culture. Zero Foxtrot dedicates itself to producing content, honoring the sacrifices of forgotten heroes of the past, and connecting history to the present. Embark on a journey with Zero Foxtrot today at ZeroFoxtrot.com. It's not merely our products. It's about the ethos that we embody. Rugged, resilient, and timeless. Was there a story that you broke that put profootballtalk.com on the map? What were, Do you remember early, was there something early on that drew massive attention to your site? I think that, I, I know when, when Randy Moss was getting traded by the Vikings to the Raiders, we were way ahead of the curve on that. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one that really helped us pick up some some viewership and some audience participation that, you know, people just didn't know about us. And that, that was so much the focus for the first five or six years, making sure people were aware of the existence of the site. And I did so many free radio spots coast to coast. Anytime anybody would ask, I would do it because that's the most effective form of advertising you can do as a, as a media company. You get 15 minutes of conversation where the ad is embedded in what the people are listening to. It's not part of the commercials. It's part of the organic content that they're tuning into the radio station for. So I did a lot of that to try to build audience. And I know that the Randy Moss trade was one of the ones that really caused an uptick. And then a couple of years after that, with the Mike Vick, when they found the dogfighting operation, I knew from the start that he was in the middle of it. I mean, I just knew instinctively there's no way you own that amount of property in suburban Virginia and not know what's going on there. And that was kind of my guiding point. And I hammered it and hammered it and hammered it and hammered it. And, uh, you know, eventually it was clear that what I suspected all along was true. And I think through that process of being very aggressive about a story that, that, that people were just ignoring, 
that that really helped us uh, over a period of weeks, not you know, not days, not right. just that one big pop, and everybody sees your website name go across the crawl on ESPN. This was something that was sustained, and people noticed. And in hindsight, people appreciated the fact that, and that's one of the things we've always tried to do. And I've, I always look for that story where whatever someone is selling us isn't the truth. And if there's a way to push back against it aggressively, I will, just because I'm not a big fan of BS. And if I feel like we're being lied to, then I think we need to fight back against that. And, uh, and, and Mike Vick was the first example on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis of a situation where I thought, you know, somebody was full of crap and we just needed to keep hammering until the truth came out. And your law background probably helped there immensely with, you know, once that got into um, the whole legalities of it with uh, him getting caught and, and, and ended up in jail, obviously. I remember, Jimmy, when I first got into the business, I felt horribly inadequate because I had no <laughs> journalism training of any kind. Right. And in time... I thought, my God, I would feel horribly inadequate if I hadn't gone to law school in this business because there are so many different stories and angles. That if you don't have a lawyer that you can call immediately and who can explain this stuff to you, and how's a lawyer going to explain it to you unless the lawyer understands all the facts? Right. It takes you know, an hour to get a reliable opinion. I can run any fact pattern, anything that comes up that's remotely connected to the legal realm and and uh, run it through my experience and explain to people exactly what's going on and and you know that that's that's a niche that that uh, uh, I'm I'm happy to have uh, because I think it's added to the to the audience over the years as well. And it, and the the crazy thing about that I and mean, we have our legal analyst Michael McCann here at SI.com. And I had Mike McCann on on this podcast about a, a month or two ago. And it, the crazy thing about it in in situations like him and for you is. You know, the legal background comes in handy when you have serious issues, whether it's, you know, Michael Vick going to jail and then, you know, you need it for ridiculous issues. I mean, we see, you know, uh, people suing over, you know, they get hit in the face with a T-shirt that gets shot into the stands or, um, you know, the the Saints uh, wanting to sue the referees or the NFL with the title game with the pass interference that wasn't called. So the legal background helps on on many levels. Oh, I mean, in 18 years, I can't tell you how many hundreds of depositions I sat in on, either as the questioner or as the lawyer who was there representing the witness who was being questioned, trials, hearings, just working through case after case after case, understanding the dynamics, the legal dynamics, the intangible dynamics, the real-world practical issues that, that factor into the way a judge or a jury looks at something. And I'm glad I don't have to do it anymore. But I remember enough of it that I can run anything that comes up through that filter and try to explain to people who are going to get overwhelmed by the jargon and tune out. And that's always the thing. When I was a consumer of news, there would always be that that potentially alienating factor in the writing that would make you just quit reading because you feel like you feel like you're stupid. You can't understand this. Right. What is this? What are they trying to tell me? And so I've always, when it's a legal issue, I've always tried to, to strike that balance where I feel like the person who is is listening understands exactly what I'm talking about, and they come out of it feeling like they're a little bit smarter. What is your relationship like with the NFL front office, Goodell, if there's any relationship there at all? Do you ever hear from them? Or is it good? Do they get mad at things you post? What's that like navigating? Well, I mean, that? here's the reality. For any sports league that is going to own and operate its own media company that necessarily 
will not touch certain things or will not be critical of certain things and will always know that there's a third rail that it's not going to come close to, there's going to be irritation when there's an independent media outlet that is willing to jump up and down on that third rail, in part because maybe there's something that's happening that shouldn't be happening, or maybe there's a story that's being told that isn't the truth. And for me, it really became an issue with the bounty scandal in 2012. Once I realized that, in my opinion, and I believe this firmly to this day, that the NFL made a big deal out of something that was a cultural issue in the NFL, and this really came through in Paul Tagliabue's decision that overturned the suspensions that Roger Goodell imposed on the Saints players. Paul Tagliabue said, when you've got a cultural problem in the NFL, you don't just find one team and punish that team and make an example of that team and tell everyone else, don't you do the same thing. When there's something that's going on on a widespread basis, you put everyone on notice that, that everything's changing now. And if we catch anybody moving forward, we're going to take action against you. But this thing that everyone is doing, and I would submit that everyone had some form or fashion of a bounty program where there was some $100, $500, whatever it may be, for somebody that makes a big hit, a big, a clean legal hit, not, not a, a dirty Jeff Galuli type of a hit, but a clean <laughs> legal hit that sends the opponent to the sideline. That was a cultural problem in the NFL. And for whatever reason, they decided they were going to go after the Saints. And I think the reason they did it was the concussion litigation was just getting started, and the NFL needed to create the impression that we're serious about player health and safety. So anyway, through that process, I believed that the NFL was selling facts that weren't true, and that's when I kind of resolved that any time the NFL disciplines a team, a player, a coach, whoever, I'm going to make sure that what they're telling us is true, that the evidence is tested, and that if I believe there's there's something less than the whole truth in there, I'm going to say so. And that does create from time to time, that attitude that I have creates from time to time some friction with the league office. But I think we have a good understanding. And I think they understand that, that they should and they need to have a dialogue with me so I understand their perspective before I reach a conclusion that may not be warranted. At least I can factor in their viewpoint when I think that they did something or said something they shouldn't have done. And so, you know, I think there's a healthy tension that needs to be there if you're going to, to, to try to hold folks accountable. And I view the people in the league office as the stewards of the game that I grew up loving. And just because they occupy those positions doesn't mean that they justify or deserve any type of special deference. They're just the people who are in those seats for now. And I think somebody needs to make sure those people are doing their jobs the right way, whether it's issues with the bounty scandal, Deflategate, which I was a very strong opponent of, the, the uh, punishment that was imposed on the Patriots, or just how they handled this pass interference replay review. People need to, to, to peel back the curtain and be willing to say, here's where the problem is. Now let's come up with a solution so we can make the game better. And that's my ultimate motivation. Let's make the game better. And, you know, sometimes that gets misinterpreted, and sometimes we just need to communicate a little bit better so people at the league office aren't, like, personally upset with me. But it's a work in progress, and it's, it's handled on a story-by-story, case-by-case basis. And I think I try to strike a balance where they understand where I'm coming from, even if they, they don't like the fact that I'm pushing something that they'd rather just go away. Right. Does it ever get dicey that, you know, you have your site and then you work for NBC? And, I, you know, I know from, you know, I worked at Fox for two and a half, three years. Uh, the NFL runs the show. I mean, they'll tell you differently, but... If the NFL doesn't want you covering something, doesn't want you saying something, ESPN, ABC, CBS, Fox, I mean, they sort of get their way usually. Uh, could that ever? Does that ever become a conflict for you? 
Well, I've got a unique relationship with the NFL and with NBC because even though I'm on NBC's air, and when I'm on NBC's air, I have a different filter for what I'm willing to say and how far I'm willing to go with something. But NBC doesn't own ProFootballTalk.com. NBC has an exclusive license to our content. Right, right. But, that, that's why but I think PF- there could be a conflict. That, that's exactly Well, well right. and, and, the, and what happens is, I mean, the reality is this. 99.9% of the things that I would write or say fall under my PFT umbrella, not NBC umbrella. But it creates tension because there's my relationship with NBC and the NBC's relationship with the NFL. But, you know, the, the basic reality is PFT will continue to exist well beyond the expiration of the relationship with NBC. Not that I want it to end. I want it to continue indefinitely. But I try to get people at the league office to understand it. You know, just because it's easy to, to call a broadcast partner, you got to understand profootballtalk.com, the, the, the ultimate source of whatever you may be upset about in that given moment, that's going to continue to exist. And it's going to, and, and, and it exists independently. So just, just deal with me. I mean, that, that's, you know, I, I, although at times I may create the impression that I'm unreasonable and part of it is for, for effect and uh, uh, just to make things a little more interesting, you know, if somebody's got an issue, I'll talk to them, I'll deal with them, I can be reasonable, and I'll see somebody's side of the story. I mean, I, you know, some of the best relationships I have in this business started with somebody calling up and yelling at me, and I'll listen to it and uh, understand and adjust and, and move forward. So, you know, uh, yeah, hey, the NFL has a property that everyone wants, and, and it's the one thing that can still galvanize an audience of millions, and it has high value, and everybody knows that, and they've got broadcast partnerships that, that they feel strongly about, and the broadcast partners feel strongly about it as well. And I give NBC and the NFL credit that, that this relationship with a renegade website was even allowed to exist in the first place. I mean, 10 years right. ago, when, when Dick Ebersol did the deal initially that brought PFT under the NBC umbrella, I mean, I would have never envisioned something like that happening. So, you know, uh, it, it's worked. And the mere fact that, that the relationship exists shows that, that NBC is able to strike the balance between the importance of the relationship to the NFL, but also the importance of the relationship to the audience to provide accurate, thoughtful information, facts, opinion, etc. Because ultimately, that's who we're catering to is the audience. Right. And you know we're enhancing the audience's enjoyment of the sport. Because when you're not watching the games, if you're a true fan, you're looking for information and takes and opinions and just analysis so, so you can, you can uh, you know, uh, enjoy the game when the game isn't being played. So, uh, you know, it's not the easiest balance to strike, but I commend NBC and the NFL uh, for, for, you know, making it work and understanding that, uh, you know, sometimes it's okay to have a little controversy. Sometimes that draws more people to the product. Do you feel competitive with Schefter, Rappaport, Glazer? Do you have relationships with them? Do you think... Uh... Some are good at their job, bad at their job. Do you are you do you feel like uh, you're connected with them in a way because you're all sort of the insiders? What, what's your relationship? Are you do you feel competitive with them? Let's start. There. Well, I mean, we're all going to feel competitive because we all want to break the news, and we all want now. Now, now, here's the thing: there's different types of news that gets broken. Right. I really don't aspire to get the five minute heads up that that you know, Schefter or Rappaport seem to specialize in. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and part of the problem is this, and this isn't a criticism. This is just reality. This is how the sausage gets made. To be in position where the Falcons are going to call you five minutes before they fire Dan Quinn, 
or the Eagles are going to text you five minutes before they sign Alshon Jeffrey. To be in that position, you, you have to cultivate a relationship that consists of a reluctance to ever criticize the people who are going to be making those decisions and giving you the five-minute heads up. Right. So, you know, you, you do it to serve it. You do, it you, it's, it's a balance. You're serving your audience because you're giving them five-minute warning before the announcement comes up. And, and so much of the news that gets generated by the NFL insiders is just a five-minute heads up of what ultimately is going to be announced anyway. So you, you provide the service, and, that, and I don't discount the value of letting someone know what's going to happen five minutes before it happens or ten minutes or five hours or whatever it may be. But you also have to sacrifice your ability to, to call it like you see it from time to time. Because if you do that, you damage the relationship, and then someone else gets the story the next time. Right. And you can't be the one who says, I get all these stories before anyone else. So from my perspective, I'd rather get the story. And this is Glazer's mindset as well. And Glazer and I have known each other for a long time, and we've become good friends because we both came into the business in very non-traditional ways. But in his view, and I agree with him on this, the true journalism that happens as it relates to NFL stories is the stuff that they don't want us to know, the stuff that was never going to come out, like the Spygate tape that Glazer got back in 2007. Right. Stories that, that would never be handed to someone and then announced by the team's official Twitter account. Those are the things, you know, like a fight on the plane on the way home or, you know, wh wh whatever may be going on behind the scenes that they'd rather us not know about. Trade, uh, trade talks that, that ultimately didn't result in a trade being done and both teams not wanting that to come out. That, that's where the fun stories are because you know you're cutting against the grain of that machinery, which typically consists of somebody getting a five-minute heads up on something that we're all going to find out about anyway. Gotcha. Um I want to get to something in the media, but before I do that, I do have to say about Pro Football Talk. One of the things I find fascinating and love about the site is that it's basically the same as it was day one in terms of layout, which in this business is very rare because everyone likes to change things all the time to show how smart they are. And they like to add as many bells and whistles to show how smart they are instead of just giving people the information they want and need. Have you like... Is that a conscious effort on your part not to change it if people ask you to change it? It's as simplistic a layout as it can get, which I think people, I think that draws people in. It's like, here's the, here's what you need. No bullshit. Click this, get this, and be on with your day. Yeah, and, and Jimmy, it's a very, very simple and selfish uh, position on my part. I haven't changed it because I don't want to deal with a thousand emails and tweets right. and comments, change it back, change it back, change it back. Change. I don't want to hear that. And the best way I can avoid that is to just keep it. It's worked, right? Why, exactly. why change it? Exactly. It's worked for 20 years or 18 years, going on 19 next year. Why would I want to change it if it's working? And I know that the loyal members of the audience who have been here from day one will go nuts if all of a sudden their experience has changed. That is and, and true. And what we're trying to do is enhance the experience in a way that they don't notice it. If they notice the experience has changed, that is the first step toward a slew of emails from people complaining about whatever we did. And we had, we had one 
format change a few years ago that we tried and people revolted and we changed it back immediately. I mean, it was a matter of, of two or three hours before we changed it back. Right. And, uh, and it was lesson learned because I know what would happen. And, uh, um, and, and it's a credit to NBC as well. You know, they went into this relationship and, and, um, it, it, Rick Cordella, who ha- has moved on to a key role in the streaming service that NBC is currently putting together, but they put Rick in charge of the digital sports content in early 2009, and his first order of business was to call me up and, and try to entice us to do some sort of broad arrangement with NBC, and I did, I did not want to do it. I was not interested in doing it. I never wanted to go mainstream. I had that deep-seated fear that it's going to feel like a job and I'm going to hate it. And I just wanted to scare him off. So I, I basically did a twist on the George Costanza, this is the show, this is the show, and, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be anything else. I said, i got to have full editorial control over everything, and if you don't give me full editorial control, then we're wasting each other's time. And I expected him to say, well, we can't do that, we're NBC, thanks for your time, and we all move on. And, you know, he paused for a half second, and he said, yeah, we're fine with that. And, and I said, oh, crap, now i got to come up with another way to scare this guy off. <laughs> And it was still like four or five months before I warmed up to it after that. But, but you know, basically because I wasn't interested in, in, in having this thing become something bigger than it was, I, I made a demand that NBC has adhered to and respected for 10 years and counting where I got final say over everything, including the outline and the format of the site. And that's another reason why I've been able to keep it the way it is. Uh, with you know, without anybody having a change in their experience, and I don't expect it to change in a dramatic way at any time in the future. Well, I hate change on websites, so I'm glad you've kept it the same. And it shows the beauty of one person being in charge and not having too many chefs in the kitchen to to show how smart they are. Um, you mentioned the feedback from people. Another thing I find interesting is you don't have your own personal Twitter account, if I'm not mistaken, right? You just use the Pro Football Talk account. Correct. And it drives some people crazy, which makes me even more happy that I use that account instead of a personal account. And and you'll mix it up with people on there from what I see. You're not afraid to uh, get into it, which is interesting from a... Yeah, I've tried to, I've tried to, uh, frankly, and and not to, I'm I'm always concerned about uh, uh, saying things that I probably shouldn't say as it relates to non-sports issues, but because of the example that has been set by certain of our elected officials on Twitter... Uh, that has served as kind of a of a reminder to you know not be an ass on Twitter. Uh, so I, I'm probably less combative than I used to be right. because you know there are certain high profile individuals who are extremely combative and it's a real turnoff. Uh, but but sometimes if if you catch me in a bad mood because I'm plugged in all the time and I just get to the point where I'm sick of hearing it, then I'll 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 give it back to someone. But I do that far far less frequently than I yeah. used to in large part because of. Uh, where we are politically, and and uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, I also, I mean, I, I I sort of, I've also come, to, I came to a revelation. I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, too. That when you start getting into it about sports with people, there's just they're never going to listen to you, and they're ne- you're never going to change their mind, and it just ends up becoming a whole back and forth. I mean, if you think this player is good and someone on Twitter doesn't, they're never going to agree with you. So it's it's a big waste of time. Well, and it's funny too, Jimmy, once we put a comment section in, I don't know how long ago, eight, nine, ten years ago, my wife started reading them and she, you know, I can't, do you, do you see what these people are saying about you? It's like, right. just don't read it. Right. Don't read it. Because look, the passion that causes them to write those things is the passion that gets them to show up in the first place. Right. 
So, you know, they're passionate about football and they're passionate about their team and they don't like that I said something bad about their team and they're going to say something bad about me. And I'd rather give them that platform to vent uh, than some other platform to vent. So, you know, I, I don't have to deal with hate mail or people calling my house. You know, think about that. If you didn't have, if there's somebody who pisses you off in the media mm-hmm. and you can deal with them on Twitter or post a comment about them, right? If you couldn't do that, what are you going to do? You're going to find their phone number <laughs> or you're going to send them a, you know, a, a nasty letter in the mail. And I don't have to worry about that crap because everybody's got an easy way to vent about me any way that they want to digitally. And, uh, so she quit reading the comments, and right. uh, you know, and uh, that was a wise move. And I don't read them either, and I don't care what people say. And uh, life is a lot easier that way. It, it is funny though how you just, no matter who it is, you get accused of hating a team, and it's you know, it's 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 kind of comical that everyone you know, sports fans have that defensive. I mean, I don't have a favorite football team. I I like all the you know, I I, I hook on to teams as the years go on and players I like, and in, you know, in this business, you get to know players, so then you may like. You know, so I don't have a team, and I, I sort of pick up teams as the years go on. And so, if I'm critical of another team, just as an observation, then it's you know I hate that team, and it's it's a fascinating mindset that sports fans have where people hate your team. People are so hypersensitive yeah. to any comment that is in any way viewed as critical of or appreciative of right. their team. And I was that way when I was a fan, right? So I can understand it. And Chris Collinsworth tells the story that. You know, he hears it all the time, obviously, because every broadcast, somebody's going to perceive that he's in favor of one team or against the other team. And he used to get asked the question all the time, and he still does. Why do you hate the Giants? Why do you hate the Browns? Why do you hate this? Right. And he, he tells the story that at one point he just decided his answer to those questions is going to be, I just do. Because <laughs> uh, it's not like you're going to win that argument. Right, and right. it's not like you're going to convince them otherwise. And, uh, and it is, you know, whether it's college football, pro football, basketball, whatever, anything that people are passionate about, they are very, very sensitive. They're protecting their team like they protect a family member. And if you say anything remotely critical, they're going to be upset. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, let me, I want to get your take on some media stuff here. I, do you, well, let me ask you this. I mean, obviously I, I cover media. This is the SI media podcast. Do you get into the announcers? Do you, is, I mean, every sports fan I feel like has an opinion on announcers, but obviously you're dealing with hardcore news and all that. Do you, do you get all hung up on, on announcers calling NFL games or it's not your deal? One thing that I learned after joining NBC, um, and, and I remember getting a call from a PR person at Fox because I was critical of Joe Buck during and after the playoff game between the Cardinals and the Packers, 2009 season, wild card game, overtime, crazy finish. Aaron Rodgers was face masked on the play that resulted in a fumble that was returned for a touchdown that ended the game. And it was one of the most exciting NFL games I'd ever seen. And Joe Buck was just kind of like flat. The, you know, it's like he's calling a baseball game in the fifth inning. And, and, I, and I don't think what I said was over the top. It's just like, come on, man, show me a little passion here. Right. Show me some excitement. This is a great football game. And somebody from Fox PR called me up and, you know, gave me the lecture that now that you're with NBC, you got to be careful what you say about announcers with other networks and blah, blah, blah. And, and I've learned over the last 10 years, especially now that I'm kind of in that fray as well, probably makes sense to just let others be the ones who complain about the announcers during the games. Although right. at times, at times it's it's a struggle 
to hold your tongue, especially in response to certain high-profile standalone broadcasts that currently could use a major upgrade, if you know what I mean. I wrote about them yesterday. and, and heard, <laughs> I don't know who you mean. And heard from PR I have, people. I did not Go read figure. your column from yesterday yeah, well, about the topic that we're both referring to. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I got an email <laughs> from PR. Who would have thunk? Uh, so, all right. So let me ask you this, though. One, I, I get asked this question all the time. Every one of my friends wants to know this. I want, everyone wants to know what's going to happen with the next TV deal. Is that something you have? I, the Obviously, listen, there's going to be some streaming aspect to Sunday Ticket. I think I don't think that's a secret. Um, uh, it does look like DirecTV will lose the exclusivity, ooh, exclusivity on it. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, Jimmy, I think as to DirecTV, they'll continue to have the satellite deal because there are millions of Americans, first of all, who don't have cable, second of all, don't have internet, and people who are out in the sticks with their satellite dishes, that's the only way they're going to see these NFL games. And and the, the Sunday ticket package through satellite is a way to connect millions of people to the NFL product on a widespread basis. So I could see DirecTV keeping the satellite package, and somebody else swooping in with a, with a very high-end, very effective, you know, I recently got YouTube TV, and it is incredible. And I can only imagine what an Internet company could do with the NFL Sunday ticket package is something you could carry around on your phone or watch in your house on different screens or whatever the case may be. Right. And I think, I, I don't know anything here, but common sense suggests something like that is coming. As it relates to the traditional TV deals, though, we, we have to always remember that there still are millions of people who don't have cable, internet, or satellite, and are relying only on whatever free signals come into their homes and are captured by the $15 antennas that you get at Walmart. Uh, rural, not rural, but but you know, people in the city, you can get a lot of you can get a lot of channels for free. You right. don't have to you don't have to have a cable mm-hmm. bill every month. Right. And there are a lot of people who watch those games, and as a result, there is huge value in the NFL being on. ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, those types of networks, the big games, the, the primetime games, and, and that's the balance. How much money do you take as the NFL to get that huge infomercial that has 25 million people watching it and you get paid X versus taking more but putting it on a platform that isn't going to be as widely viewed like the $2 billion a year or whatever the number currently is that ESPN gets for Monday Night Football. And, and the one thing about it, too, it seems like there's always – one more major player than there is seat at the table to ensure that everybody ends up paying more each time around because if you're not willing to, one of the, you know, this other fringe company that is there ready to swoop in will do it. So, right. you know, we, we saw the first disruption in 94 when Fox took over the CBS package and then 98, CBS takes over NBC's package and then 2006, the big realignment of Monday night football as a practical matter to Sunday nights, the big game of the week in prime time, Monday night to cable. You know, I don't know how the dominoes are going to fall. And uh, I think what the NFL is trying to do is get the CBA done with the players. And there may be some overlap. They may be trying to land two planes at once where you're trying to get a CBA deal done and get the TV deals done and, uh, and basically hold them up and uh, have, a, have a victory lap. I think what they'd like to do, I don't think they're going to be able to get this done. They'd like to do it the week before the Super Bowl, but uh, I think it's just too much work to do uh, to get a new CBA and the TV deals in place. But, but I, I think they're very, very interested in getting both of those done. You know, there's, there's chatter that a recession may be coming, so it makes sense to do the deals before it hits. 
and the, the ratings are good now. Who knows what's going to happen next year with another presidential election? So you're operating in a better position of strength to extend these deals. And I think the fact that the TV deals are looming is actually helping the league and the union have a far less contentious negotiation this time around than they did back in 2010, 2011. So I, I feel like yeah. it's all moving in that direction. And I won't be surprised if by March or April, all the deals are done. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what the new landscape looks like. I don't think it's going to be a dramatic change. Um, but, but uh, you know, we're, we're going to see more and more of the, of the streaming elements involved because there's more and more people out there who, who are only relying on on uh, what's available via internet stream and not cable or satellite. And the NFL is in a great position because every day there seems to be a new streaming company. I mean, the the, com- the competition among the streaming companies will help the uh, the NFL immensely. And it, it it's funny. I'm very critical of the NFL. Uh, you know, I think they do a lot of things that just I I don't get. But I I will say this. I give them an, a ton of credit for what they've done with television and opening things up. You know, they added the Sunday ticket twenty plus years ago. Great move. Added the red zone channels. Great move. Um, I like the Thursday night game. Uh, to me, the more standalone games, the better. So you're getting great games on Thursday night. Um, you get, you know, they've done a good job putting that big game at 425 on Sunday and and the flex. I think the NFL has done a good job catering to the TV viewer. They still have a little work to do in, in case in in. in terms of these markets where we have two teams like New York. I mean, this Sunday, for example, you know, we have to watch the Jets basically at one o'clock and we're not going to, we can't get San Fran against New Orleans. And then at four o'clock in New York on TV, you're getting Jacksonville at San Diego. I mean, so there's still a little bit of work to do to make sure everyone gets the, you know, last week in New York, we didn't get Ravens Niners. So uh, the the I think the NFL's done a good job with it, so I, I have faith they'll uh, whatever the next deal is will be good for viewers. And I agree with you completely. The more standalone games, the better. It's an opportunity to maximize the audience, and 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 we kind of have that collective shared experience where we're all watching that game. The interaction on Twitter makes it obvious that we're all watching that game and only that game. And, and anything they can peel away from that cluster of 1 p.m. Eastern games on a Sunday is good, too, because, you know, you got eight, nine, ten games going on at once. A lot gets lost in those games, and the more that they could have where we could watch them standing alone, the, the, the better it would be. And it's, yeah. it's a shame the broadcast antitrust exemption is tied up in a, in a prohibition on Friday and Saturday night football from Labor Day weekend until early December because – Think about how, how compelling it would be to have a Friday night game, a right. Saturday night game, right. every week. They can't do it, or they'd have an issue with the way they sell their TV rights, and uh, they'd, you know, they'd potentially open themselves up to antitrust liability. But you know, they've found all the windows they can use for now, and that's good. And uh, you know, that kind of creativity could lend itself to, to you know, more opportunities to avoid situations like you're talking about, where a really great game like Ravens 49ers ends up parked at a spot where I think I heard 18% of the country had that game, one of the great games of the year, and less than 20% of the country saw it live. Uh, I'll end it on a selfish note. I want to get your take on, since you brought this up, um, the idea I've pitched the last two years, a Friday morning London game, the, the Friday after Thanksgiving. Everyone's off on that Friday after Thanksgiving. Everyone is stuffed from the day before. You're laying around that morning. You don't want to go to Black Friday. You give a 9.30 Eastern London game. Now, when I put this on Twitter, most of the feedback was 
tremendous idea. You're a genius, which you always like to hear. But then, of course, I got they would never put uh, players away from their families. Well, there's three games on Thanksgiving now as it is. So those people are now with their families. And most NFL players probably would like to be away from their families on Thanksgiving. So I don't think that's an issue there. But what do you think of that idea? Ridiculous? I love the idea. Thank you. I love the idea. The impediment would be, and I'd have to go look at the law from 60 years ago, that created the broadcast antitrust exemption, which allows the NFL, and I mentioned this a minute ago, it allows the NFL to sell all of its games in one bundle and not the Cowboys sell their games to NBC like Notre Dame does and the Patriots sell their games to CBS. And there's value in putting them all together because who the hell would buy certain teams that don't need to be named their games? So the, the problem is they can't have Friday or Saturday games from Labor Day weekend until early December, so that would fall into that. They'd need a revision to that. Right. And I don't think it would be a difficult revision because the whole purpose of that, that Friday is to protect high school football. Who's playing high school football at 9.30 in the morning exactly. on, a, on, on the Friday after Thanksgiving? So, um, you know, if they really wanted to do it, they'd probably be able to work it out. Uh, I, I like it. Look, anytime you take advantage of that captive audience, um, it's a good thing for the you, NFL. You would and, get a big rating for that game. Everyone's off. Everyone's home in the morning. That Friday morning, most people are home unless they're shopping. I mean, people would want an NFL game at that time. Hey, you could even take it farther than that. You could do one at 930. You could do one at 1. You could put, put two of them in, in London on, right. on uh, the day after Thanksgiving. I mean, you know, and, and that, that kind of, regardless of whether it would work and regardless of whether or not they could pull it off, it's the kind of creativity that they need to have in, in order to get more of these moments where 20 to 30 million Americans are all crowded around their phone or their TV or their tablet or wherever at the same time. And there yeah. is no product right now in the world, well, at least in our world, in the United States, that, and I'm sure, I'm sure soccer does this in other countries, where that many people will tune into something live at the same time. And, and that's the value of the NFL, and, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, if ever. Me either. All right. I appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on, and uh, enjoy the rest of the season. And maybe I uh, want my one hour for my nap today. I can't. I can't uh, have a nap now. Oh I had my no god! Idea we talked for. I guess that was. I guess that made it a good conversation. I had no idea we we, we talked for an hour. I, so I enjoyed it. I I I, I feel bad because I know how important the nap is. So I do I'm feel bad about that. I'm just. I'm just. Uh, I'm just kidding. Right, it's may, nap time now. Maybe we'll chat again during the playoffs or Super Bowl week or something like that. All right, Jimmy. Good talking to you. Man. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> All right, my thanks to Mike Florio from ProFootballTalk.com. Appreciate him coming on. If this is your first time checking us out, give us a subscribe. Helps a lot. Rate and review helps too. Also, go into the archives. Katie Nolan was on the show last week. If you missed it over the busy Thanksgiving holiday, give that one a download and a listen. And uh, again, if you could hit that subscribe button, helps tremendously. All right, that wraps up this episode. We'll see you next week on the SI Media Podcast. Take care. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.